In this episode, I have an insider's discussion with Tom Basso, a legendary trader and investor who was famously interviewed as a market wizard in the wildly successful book, The New Market Wizards. We talk about how to improve your investment habits, how your strategy can be designed to be successful in many different market conditions, up, sideways, or down. We talk about how to harness volatility to your favor, getting extreme diversification, attacking risk instead of managing risk, investing in ETFs, stocks, futures, and more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so excited to talk to Tom because, you know, I, I initially talked to Tom in the early 90s and it was just a very brief conversation. Been following him for years, love his work, and I think his work can help a lot of people. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Tom. Lewis, it's been a pleasure. I, I remember meeting you. I've been in touch with you off and on for a long time, but uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. You know, um, when I was looking through your, your just all the stuff that I've seen of yours before, you know, preparing for today, the thing that struck me the most is that you're, you're so even keel and also that your approach is designed for keeping your sanity. Um, in the trading world, People tend to do a lot of stupid things, and with you know their their brain puts them in the wrong place. They're over caffeinated. They smoke too much. They drink every night to to get to sleep. Practically, yeah. I mean, the stereotypical trader is not a model that I don't that I would recommend to any young trader starting out. That's not a recipe for success long term. You know, I I noticed that your your career was started off more in the engineering, chemical engineering, if I remember right. Yeah. Um, I, I, but I was curious, what were your early influences when you started getting into the investment world? My early influences was a bunch of other chemical engineers who were all sitting around a lunch table discussing stock market and newsletters back in those days. There wasn't things like the Internet and blogs. This is almost pre the 2000 bit per second uh, bips uh, modems that you'd tie to the phones, if you remember those. You might be mm -hmm. too young. No, uh, I remember. <laughs> and uh, you dial up and there'd be these weird noises that would go off. And then you'd take 15 minutes to download your data. Today, I mean, data is available everywhere. Uh, some you have to pay for, some it's free. Uh, I mean, gosh, uh, you can run massive simulations in seconds. It, we didn't even have PCs back when I was doing this. So we would exchange you know, Pete over there across the table would have, uh, you know, uh, a copy of some newsletter, the low price newsletter or something, a low price stock newsletter. And then, you know, Joe over here has a, a copy of some other newsletter and we're, we're exchanging ideas and talking about socks. And it kind of, you know, made the lunch hour fun, get away from engineering. And I got to thinking, somewhere along the way, right in the mid seventies. And I, I, I sort of, it was heard on the street that inspired me this way. If you remember that, I don't even know if they still do it. I don't even take the wall street journal anymore. Um, I, th these guys were expressing on Monday mornings, I think it was uh, their idea of what the stock market's going to do. And it, and I started in this engineering brain of mine, separating opinion from fact. So the Dow is at 31,000 or something. That's a fact. Okay. That's a number. It's irrefutable. You can look in the paper and verify it. It's, it's a fact. The market has gone up 10% since January. That would be a fact. The market is going to react negatively to Jay Powell's reports today at Jackson Hole. That would be an opinion, mm -hmm. it's not a fact. Mm -hmm. And I started separating all the information in the world that you get hit with as an investor or trader into opinion and fact. And I trained my brain to just ignore the opinion and absorb mm -hmm. facts after facts after facts. And it got me a lot more towards simulating things and 
just trying to sort of create my own opinions by way of doing the research and doing the, you know, sometimes hard work and sort of ruining my eyes uh, over the, I'm surprised my eyes aren't totally almost blind by now, but uh, I have decent eyes. I, I guess I've treated them well health-wise, but I tell you what, it, after a lot of studies and a lot of trying to create my own opinions, you kind of feel like you understand what's really going on and you have uh, sort of a, a self-confidence about it because you've done the work. Uh, mm -hmm. If you haven't in somebody else's opinion and it's wrong, especially, and if it's a prediction that turns out to be false, you're kind of lost and wandering around and always stressed. And that's why I think a lot of uh, trading pushes people's buttons psychologically and creates that lack of serenity um, that, that so many traders have. And it's, it's sad because it's really simple, but there's a fine line. I, I had a guy the other day say uh, on a recent publish that I did where the market was going up, and now I've got, I think it's nine or 10 of my 20 ETFs that I trade in the sector timing uh, are positive to the stop loss point. And my hedge, when I took it off recently, uh, is now way ahead of where I took it off. So I'm, if I put on another hedge, I'm going to put it on at a higher price. So that was a successful move. And he used the term, and I, I'm not maligning him or anybody, but it's just a subtle difference I want to point out. He said, nice call on the market rally. It wasn't a call. It was me measuring indicators. And, and, the indicators and, went through to the upside. Mm -hmm. So the direction's now up. So I moved to the positive side with my various funds that went over to the positive side. There was no prediction. It's not a call. And there's a subtle difference. So I, I try to point it out just to try to make sure we try to get the lingo in trading right. Um, that's, you know, that is so that opinion versus data. That is a huge thing. Because one of the things I was going to ask you actually was uh, to what degree does your independent thinking and your own creativity have to do with your process? Um, so I, I would like to just ask you a little bit about your concept of attacking risk. Okay. What tell me the, the difference between managing risk and attacking risk? Okay, so I, I pick on my father, he's no longer with us, but uh, back in the I guess it would have been the 60s uh, and well, 70s and going into the 80s actually, uh, he was a postman, delivered mail to people's houses, uh, I lived in this little Italian. Uh, oriented village, 10,000 people called Salve, New York on the west side of Syracuse, fun little place to grow up and a uh, lot of great food. And uh, so he's delivering mail and he wants to put some money away because he knows he's got three kids that are, may go to college. And, and, uh, and my brother is 6'5 and 260 and I'm 6'3 and 205. So, I mean, we're big people. We, we eat a lot, you know, the, the expenses are up there. So he's trying to save money. He puts it in a, he doesn't like the risk. Some of the other guys at the post office are into the stock market. Oh no, that goes up and down. Can't do that. Mm. It's, it's like gambling. And so he goes out into a local savings and loan in Salve and he buys CDs. We get to early Reaganomics and the interest rates are drastically flipped upside down and the savings and loans just all go belly up. Their mortgages are on long-term uh, uh, low rates, and they're now paying very high rates for the CD money to get the money in so they can loan it out. They're upside down, and they're all bankrupt now. So the FSLAC has to come in and bail everybody out eventually, but they don't have enough money to bail it out. So thank goodness for my father, I guess, Congress stepped in and to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars bailed out the savings and loan industry and made my father, the poor little, you know, the, the, the postman trying to save for his family whole again, uh, along with millions and millions of other people. So let's examine that risk. He tried to avoid risk and yet risk found him anyway. Mm. He didn't identify properly the fact that there was interest rate risk and institutional risk with those savings and loans. 
And I think a lot of people tend to do that. They, they hire the financial planner, they, they buy the annuity, they do this, whatever, you know, whatever they're trying to do, they try to hide from risk. I'm not, I'm conservative. I don't want something risky. But in fact, and at the same time they do that, they look at me trading like 26 futures markets and they think I'm a nut job. <laughs> and they think I'm being aggressive and man, he's, he's dangerous. Mm. It all depends on the risk that you're trying to go after. And by attacking it, it focuses you on what might harm you. And by doing something proactive against it, you're in more control over what's going on. To sit back and not do anything allows risk to come find you on its terms. Mm. And so I find it a lot easier to, if it's positive risk, the risk of making money, attack it and try to make money. If it's risk of losing money, attack it and try to prevent that from happening. So it's a proactive go against risk, uh, either take it on or push it away, but, you know, try to do something proactively. And it just, it settles my mind down because I feel like I know what I'm trying to do. I know what the risks are and the risks still find their way through my, uh, my attacking um, every now and again, but on balance day after day, doing a lot of things to attack risk seems to have a more benefit, at least to my psyche because I'm doing something about it. I, I'm not a guy that could sit around, buy and hold, and watch the stock market go down 50% like it did in 73, 74, and sit there and watch my portfolio for two years getting cut in half and do nothing. Most people, it's down 20 or something, they tell you goodbye and they'll fire you if you're a money manager or they'll quit the broker and go to someplace else. Mm-hmm. They just can't stick around. You know, uh, I'm not doing anything to attack that risk. That that's uh, that's so important. Um, You just reminded me of some things I've observed. You probably have observed it more than I have, but I've noticed that people want to be like indexers when everything is great. It's like uh, I remember the first time I saw this was uh, early in my career in the before the dot com bubble. Everybody wanted to be an indexer, and it was like especially if you're indexed to tech stocks. Yeah, the, the the triple Q type concept was yeah. everybody was indexed to it, and um and everybody said I can handle it. I've got the risk tolerance, blah blah blah. They, even though you know, and then when the market actually craters, everybody's risk tolerance suddenly changes, and then they sell at the wrong time, and they're not indexers. Exactly. Now, I, I know very few people who can really truly do what is what is. Um, I guess promoted by the indexing regimes out there or index industry. Yeah. Um, and what you do is something that is more rational. And and it I think a lot of it has to do with your benefit from not only your buy and sell engine. I know you want to get into that, but if you don't mind, can we talk a little bit about extreme diversification first? Okay. Extreme diversification is Something that when I started out in the industry back in 74, I started managing my own portfolio. I finally managed other people's officially in 1980. So I've been doing this a lot of years, a lot of decades now. And um, the extreme diversification back in those days when I started out was trying to buy stocks in Japan or Europe. You know, you, you bought U.S. stocks, and then you, you'd get some international diversification. You'd get some currency diversification by doing that. And it seemed to help diversify your portfolio. And in, in addition to that, if you looked at the New York Stock Exchange and the OTCs and all that stuff, there was a good amount of diversification between small cap and large cap and all that. Fast forward, 1980s PCs come in. I buy my first PC. A couple years later, the AT, IBM AT came in. I bought one of those. Start programming with reckless abandon. And uh, so does everybody else, though. And uh, what ends up happening to the world is the world gets a lot faster and the world gets a lot smaller. So if the Dow Jones is up five, uh, 5%, chances are if you own a stock portfolio, almost no matter what you own, you're going to be up 4.5, 5.5, 6, 4. You're going to be up. 
<clears throat> there's going to be a high correlation between what the indexes do and what your portfolio does, even if you don't even own a single stock that's in the uh, portfolio uh, in the index. And likewise, if you happen to be in Japan or UK or wherever, Germany, you're going to find there's a tendency for your portfolio to move the same way as that Dow Jones Industrials. So there's a high correlation, extremely high, and it's been increasing for decades now to the point where if you just have a stock portfolio or just own an ETF or a mutual fund, you're, and then you buy something that looks a little different, it turns out it's not as much difference as you think. Mm. So the reason I try to strive for extreme diversification with things like futures and things like cryptos, which I've gotten into in the last couple of years, is that if you look at, say, an S&P 500 and you put it against the hog market, <laughs> hog doesn't care what stocks are doing today. Are you kidding me? Why would they? There's no, no reason at all why hogs, lean hogs, and the market are going to have anything to do with each other. So I could be making money in hogs and making money in stocks. I could make money in stocks and lose money in hogs or the other way around. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're different. And if you start adding in things like the, you know, the Japanese yen and, uh, and corn and uh, crude oil and all sorts of other things, natural gas, unleaded gas, there's lots of different markets that are very liquid and can move, you know, millions of dollars through it. You're getting different return streams. And when you start adding all these return streams together, what ends up happening is this magic called diversification finally. You can have the stock market going down and be making tons of money in treasury bond futures and it offsets each other and you are allowed to be calm and cool and Mr. Serenity. Without that, you live and die with whatever the stock market does. And I think that's where extreme diversification is so helpful and, and including people's houses, that's real estate. Uh, real estate could go through here. I mean, we had a bubble here in Arizona and my wife, the real estate expert of the family has been tracking uh, the Scottsdale real estate prices and she's starting to see time on market go up, mm -hmm. asking prices coming down, price per square footage coming down, um, all the different indications that it's starting to cave in. Mm -hmm. I think by the fall, uh, I know this is a prediction and I hate to predict, but um, I just I almost can't understand how it would ever turn and go up again. It's going to have a rough period here. And I don't know how long it'll last. And I don't know how deep it'll go, but it clearly is trending lower now. And But having real estate in your portfolio doesn't have a whole lot to do with what corn is doing. Mm -hmm. you, so, know, Tom, you know, Tom, whenever, whenever you look at facts and they really refute the common wisdom, you always get pushed back. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I did a presentation on The Money Show talking about uh, how inflation is likely to probably continue to go up. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the facts are just like really clear and, and a lot of people know it. But you, there, there's just this sense of, of people wanting to resist what has been in the past. And in order to be a good serenity type investor, you have to be able to let go of that, right? Yeah. I mean, the world is, I kind of feel like I'm watching some kind of a movie and I'm in every scene. Uh, the movie of my life is just this ongoing kind of thing that goes on out there. The markets doing what they are are part of the movie. And I'm just sitting back here at my desk watching the movie. And and I'm always in every scene because it's my movie. And um, so I just kind of, you know, it is what it is. You know, in a movie, I mean, you can try to guess where the movie's going, but the the, the author of, of the the screenplay is probably going to throw some curveballs at you just for fun. And that's kind of the way the world works too. And uh, I just, I just, uh, it, you try not to get emotionally attached to anything. You just try to sort of, uh, uh, you know, watch it and say, okay, well, that's caving in and this over here is not looking good. And it's a detachment almost. You somehow yeah, detach yourself detaching and just looking at the numbers and then making your decision logically based on that. It just makes so much sense to me and not really being married to that, but just observing what happens after you make that decision. And if that decision turns out 
the market starts going against you or whatever, you stop out, you reverse and go the other way. You right. don't care. You're flexible you as well. Flexibility yeah, is a big know. part of it. You know, you mentioned uh, futures quite a bit, and it's it's interesting. It's it's an interesting dichotomy for a lot of people because they hear futures. They've always been told, "Oh my gosh, pork bellies," you know, or it's going to go to zero, or you're you're over levered. But um, but then if you take your more of a serenity approach and you go, "Wait a minute, if I analyze the volatility and the correlations, and I group and I diversify and I limit my position size, it's amazing. I actually do better." Yeah. Uh, because um, I've got this extreme diversification. A lot of it can come from the futures market, but it does require no understanding the differences between using futures and, um, you know, and how to position size. So I, I, one of the things that you, and, and I don't know if this is true or not, did you ever work with Van Tharp at all? Yes, I did. Okay. So he's I actually was a model trader that he hired to come in for about three years of my earlier career. Uh, and that's where I actually met and heard Ed Sequoia for the first time. That was a riot. He is he is so funny. <laughs> and uh, I actually, Ed moved on and did, was no longer the model trader. I became in, I came in after Ed. And I, I helped Van for probably, I guess, about three or four years. And then I my career just overwhelmed me. I, I mean, there was just so much going on. Market Wizards, new Market Wizards came out. Mm speaking requests and and uh, client requests and everything else i just couldn't afford another weekend away to go to a, a peak performance seminar but i really enjoyed him van had a lot of good stuff sadly he's passed these days but mm -hmm. um he and i uh, were good friends way back and he kind of crystallized some of the things that i had to figure out sort of on my own the hard way mm. he can put some good labels on it or he had done that and i think his crew the van tharp institute is going to have another peak performance coming up i want to say in september sometime here and uh they're very interesting to see the transformations that happen to people it's all geared towards the mental uh side of yourself and some of it applies to life some of it applies to trading mm -hmm. but i I learned a lot of things there, and uh, he and I. Well, that that was going to be my question. What did, what was, what was the kind of transformation for you working with Van? Uh, for me, it was the the transformation of taking, kind of um, amateur level findings about myself, like awareness and self confidence. It turns out I had a lot of self confidence. It turns out I was very aware of what was going around me. Uh, and aware of how I was reacting to trading, but I never could articulate it. You know, it never was crystallized or it never had names. You know, I, mm. I just knew that this was the right thing for me to do. Being there, you know, at multiple, multiple uh, peak performance seminars that Van put on gave me sort of, ah, that's called self-awareness, or that's called self-confidence, or this is called that. He had a lot of exercises to improve those aspects of a trader's um, mental side. Mm -hmm. And I kind of then understood, oh, well, that's, you know, I figured that out by doing this, but this is a better exercise to get there. And so I was kind of taking my amateurish level I had kind of figured a lot of this stuff out, but I had no idea how I did it. I must have stumbled my way through it or just used chemical engineering logic to, mm -hmm. to try to uh, figure out how to improve what I was doing. And he kind of crystallized a lot of that stuff in my mind for the rest of my career. So had, had he written that position sizing, the definitive guide to position sizing before you met him or after you met him? No, no. And I only read that after I wrote my own book on position sizing, because one of the chapters in that definitive book, and it is definitive, let me tell you, if you want a doorstop, it's about <laughs> this thick and fairly expensive, but it covers everything. And uh, I have to say, you know, I enjoyed reading my own chapter that he put in there with my blessing. I gave him all the formulas and he he put it in there and gave credit to me. And that was nice of him. But uh, other than that, I mean, in a few other chapters, that is so definitive. I used to read it when I wanted to make myself sleepy to go. <laughs> <laughs> 
It is thick. It is heavy duty statistics. It is it's not the way I write my Substack posts. No. I mean, your Substack is, is more entertaining. Five minutes or less, or something. This is heavy duty math and statistics, and but it is a compendium of position sizing. If somebody really wants to explore position sizing, that's the way to go. You could go nuts. So, well, one of the things I've uh, noticed, one of the things you like you talk about is differentiating initial risk versus ongoing risk. And now you've got all these quant types that are doing vol targeting, which is kind of it's it's kind of not what you're talking about, but it's similar, and and it's interesting because what you're talking about is you you came up with these concepts before all these fancy quants in the UK were doing this stuff. That's what I think personally. Okay, well, I'm going to give full credit to Larry Height for inspiring me. Larry, was, okay, uh, he came before me. He was in the first Market Wizards book, and yes. Larry is a great guy, still around and uh, still funny as ever. And uh, he he and I never talked. I was just me reading Market Wizards. I We recently chatted on the phone about six months ago when he came out with his book and I was complimenting him and we decided to just talk to each other. He had heard of me and I've heard of him. You know, we just met on the phone kind of. It was fun. Larry said something that was profoundly impactful to my engineering brain, and that was you need to make your bet size when you're risking money. You have to think of it just like you're making bet sizes in a casino. You have to keep them extremely consistent. And he was talking about risk. And so I thought, let's see. If I make the bet size the same, like I put $10,000 in every position, that's not right because the risk on each of those positions would be different. What if I used risk and divided it by equity so I would always have a consistent percentage? That would be the same bet risk-wise of every position. So I started doing that and I, I studied it first, did some simulations, and it profoundly affected my performance. It smoothed everything out, return to risk ratios went up. Mm -hmm. I said, this is a slam dunk. Let's put mm -hmm. this in play. Then I had the silver trade that was very famous in new market wizards where I ended up going from like 130,000 to all the way up to a half a million. And then silver, they raised the margins and the hunts got destroyed and down came silver. And I ended up with about a 260,000 or $250,000 account. And most would say, hey, you know, you just in a few months doubled your account. That was pretty good. And I would say I was at a half a million and now I'm down to 250,000. I just <laughs> lost 50. We always remember and the it, high, don't we? <laughs> it, yeah, well, it, equity is equity and it's mark to market in the futures yep. market. So every day that you have that, you could liquidate it and that's, that's yours. Uh, and so it profoundly got me thinking about Markets tend to go through, and I think this is where the volatility target crowd comes from too. As you start out, let's say you're talking about a corn move. It's in the doldrums down there at whatever, three, $4 a, a bushel. And nobody cares. Nobody's trading it. And the farmers are hedging their crops. The purchasers are hedging their purchases. And it's no big deal. It breaks out. A few people have now decided corn's going to have an up move. So the fundamentalists have already jumped down. They've broken it out of the range. Some of the trend followers are starting to jump on. The trend starts moving along. It starts catching people's attention. What happens? Psychologically, more and more traders are saying, whoa, I better jump on because I'm missing the corn move. They drive it even farther. And now it's getting really exciting. You're almost getting limit moves or, you know, things are happening a lot. Same thing happens in stocks. Same thing happens in bonds. Same thing happens everywhere. It's, it's a psychological cycle that you go through. So you've gone from volatility that was quiet to volatility that's increasing to volatility that's starting to get insane late in the move. And it struck me that that's what happened with silver. I bought when it was boring. And then it turns out the hunts were trying to corner silver. And I happened to be in on the same move going the same way and making a ton of money with, along with the hunts. And, but then I didn't do anything to adjust my position. I'm a good trend follower. Darn mm. it. I'm going to hold on every contract. I'm going to be disciplined. And I'm going to do all the things I learned to do. 
So I had to put myself through this psychological beating to try to hold on to that position all the way to when it finally stopped me out. And I ended up at a you know, nice 100% return, but losing 50% from the high. And mm-hmm. it struck me that, you know, what I'm doing over here with risk as a percent of equity, I could do with volatility as a percent of equity. Why don't I do that? Let's test it. So I went and simulated it. And son of a gun, what happens? When you start out, volatility has little to do with sizing your position. Risk more often than not, about 80, I, I want to say the statistics were like 80, 85% of the time, risk set your position size. But late in a rally, even if you move the stops up, the volatility gets so insane that volatility starts setting your position size late, late in the uh, emotional froth that happens. Mm-hmm. So... The ongoing was an attempt to say, I can't really keep my risk and and volatility exactly the same, because if if you buy at 1% of equity volatility, you got to give it some room to make you money. The stops may not move as fast as the market will move. So what you do is, let's say you you have half a percent of equity is going to be this one position, maybe 1% or 1.2% is where you would say, that's the maximum I want that position to ever be because I don't want to have it dominating my portfolio. And I don't want to lose more than 1.2% on that position if it goes all the way back to my stop loss point. So you set your own psychological limits. Don't, don't use mine, set your own. If you're an aggressive trader, you got a lot of money, you're very diversified, maybe it's 1% you invest. You're going to get a much wilder ride. If it's a half a percent, it'll be more tame. If it's 0.3, it'll be even uh, more tame. So you get to dial it in wherever your risk tolerance is. But the volatility adjusting that you're seeing going on today is a nod to the fact that uh, clients and money managers have a hard time when volatility gets insane. If you haven't backed off of that and stay within your comfort zone, you're going to likely abandon your approach and then all your good work is for naught. That's the key. That's the key because you could, uh, there's times when you could back to something that would look optimal. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but psychologically, many people will not stick with it. Yeah. Um, you're better off having a smoother F-factor, ride. The F factor, the Kelly criteria, some of those that really push the envelope. They look at history and they say, well, I would maximize my profits if I did this. Uh, that's a tough ride you could wipe yourself out yeah people have a hard time actually sticking with those there's some some people can they're out there and some of them manage money and you know you know won't mention any names they're still out there uh but that was kind of a precursor to vol targeting you know when when you were talking about that that was uh before vol targeting became a thing now um it's in, in 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 our process we do some of that type of vol targeting so so uh, I was just just connecting these dots is just fun for me to watch with your your career. Yeah. Um, and another thing that uh, you know you've got this book coming out, which I think is great that you're writing this book. It's going to be called I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's called the All Weather Trader. Yes, it is. And uh, I'm now in graphics. I'm uh, actually looking down at my sheet here. I'm on graphic 15 of 30. I'm halfway through wading through these darn things. I would rather be playing golf, but uh, this is the last thing that I need to do to ship it off to the publisher so they can start going through the three-month graphics arts and editing process to get the book ready for maybe around year-end, maybe a Christmas gift for your favorite trader. Um, It's called The All-Weather Trader, and what I'm trying to do with the book is to make it a story about a little bit of my trading life. Uh, all the way from start to finish. Uh, my father's even in the book with the uh, savings and loan example. Um, I tried to talk about the, the stories that led to discoveries and made profound differences in my trading. And I take it all the way up to present times and lay out in various chapters all the different little tricks and money management and risk management and volatility management and every everything I do right now today to have gotten me through these last three insane years of COVID crash, the recovery after that, 
then a rally, then an election, an economy that's turned upside down now, and uh, all sorts of you know ups and downs that we've suffered through. Uh, recession now in place after two GDP downs. Uh, I've done the same exact thing every day. I made 103% in 2020 during the COVID, not because I was smart, not because I predicted anything, not because I did anything different than what I'm doing today. It's just that the COVID crash caused a lot of markets to move very violently to the downside. And I'm a trend follower. So I was short everything and making tons of money. I was short crude oil when it went negative. I was, uh, although my contract was out far enough, it wasn't the spot month that went negative. It was the next one out and that did not go negative, but I'm short crude oil. So I'm, I'm making money from a hundred or whatever down all the way to almost zero. And then it turns around and the economy goes the other way. And there's all these PPPs and infusion into the, the money, uh, the deficit spending and all that, which I was not a fan of, but it happened. The stock market goes crazy. What, what you look at Twitter then what's everybody saying? Well, we got to make sure there's a test of the bottom before we can be sure that this is a, a not a bear market rally. My indicators went over. I went long. I got the whole move up. So made move, money on the way down, made money on the way up. Same risk that I take on today. Nothing changed. And that's the, the key to, I guess, being Mr. Serenity is every day for me, whether I'm you know losing a percent or, or making a percent, I'm doing the same process every afternoon, same indicators, same markets. It's, it's, it's almost, um, there's sometimes I liken it to taking a mini SAT exam, SAT exam. I, I go into this focus, I get through it and then I'm done and then I'm done and I'm done for 24 hours. I don't need to be there for 24 hours. Everything else is stop losses and stop buys and, that that to me is good trading when you get it down and reduce you know understand what you're doing you understand the good and the bad of it you've taken care of up markets down markets and sideways markets so you feel prepared you've got backups for internet electricity uh, computers everything monitors i've got backup monitors if my monitor fails i can put another monitor in place mm -hmm. those types of things give you that ease of mind because you know the peace of mind because you know you're prepared for just about whatever world uh, throws at you yeah, and that's, that's that, where i'm at yeah that's that's incredible um i think for a lot of people people think that it, maybe it's kind of a daunting task but in reality once you get the hang of it it's really not that bad one of the questions i had for you was uh, had, had to do with you you know selecting your portfolio your universe because Correct me if I'm wrong, back earlier, you used to actually put individual stocks in your portfolios. Is that mm -hmm. correct? You I no did. longer do that now. Is that is that correct? I haven't done it in about uh, four or five years now. ETFs came into being and you could get sector ETFs. I don't even know how many ETFs there are out there now. But I thought to myself, you know, back when I was managing 600 million, and you can, you can take a large portfolio and diversify it over 20, 30 stocks. And, and, and the world was a little less, I guess, computerized and instant trading and, you know, all the flash trading that, that goes on. I, I guess I felt like there was a more of an ability to diversify by being an individual issue. What I'm finding more and more and you can see this on the morning news. I like Stuart Varney. I met him a long time ago back at a conference in New York. He wouldn't remember me, but um, it, he's a guy that I, I love his British accent. He, I think he's spot on on so many things economically. He, he'll get, start out in the morning and he'll say, well, let's look at the tech stocks. And it's like Meta is down 4%. And <laughs> Twitter's down 3.7%. And Amazon's down, whatever, 2%. And you look at these and you realize I'm seeing numbers that are in the multiple percents on open, not even traded for an hour. It's just on open. Mm. And they're all going the same way. Uh, and then you get these things like Musk 
you know, coming in and buying Twitter or not buying Twitter. And now there's lawsuits and you get these moves of some stocks, 15, 20 percent. And I think that's hard risk to mitigate because it's just news risk. And unless you just buy 100 stocks, that's exactly right. Or 200 stocks. Yeah, you have to add more risk down. Risk you're going to get hit with some risk. If you're doing 10 stocks in your portfolio and one of them goes down by 20 percent, mm -hmm. you're having a bad day. So I started thinking about it and I thought, you know, these ETFs, the SPY, Standard Poor's 500 trades a couple hundred million shares a day by itself. I remember coming out of college when 10 million shares on the New York Stock Exchange was cause for popping the champagne and celebrating how much volume there was that day on the exchange. And now we have SPYs that do uh, 20 times that amount. And, uh, so I started thinking about ETFs and I realized, well, there's a technology ETF and there's, oh, here's one over here that's energy. And here's one that does the banking and here's one for healthcare. And I was thinking, huh, that's kind of almost like stocks. You trade like stocks because they're listed on the exchange. You can buy and sell them throughout the day. You can put stops in, unlike mutual funds. And this is this will be easy. And that, that way I don't have to agonize. I can do 20 th uh, ETFs in my portfolio and I'm extremely diversified and I can hedge it with an S&P 500 because when I do 20 different ETFs, that's very, very diversified. And the S&P 500 is very diversified. So that kind of marries up pretty well. And life is easy. I'm retired. I'm not supposed to agonize over this stuff. Yeah, so, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. That, that's what um, I do. When I first got in the business, there was a lot less of these pothole uh, stock moves. They still existed. But they happen more now, and uh, the daily volatility, the you know, can be outrageous with individual stocks. So you have to add more risk units to have the same uh, effect. But then you start, then you dilute some of your return potential. Exactly. Um, but you do have less correlation across individual stocks, or you can construct it to where it's less correlation. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a tough one. So I, I do both, by the way. Um, okay. Um, but, uh, it, but it is, I could see why, it, you know, if you're retired and you want to, you, you want to just not have to worry about all the, all the deals with corporate actions and all that ETFs are a great way to go. And now you're actually to the point where you can get enough diversification, um, across the countries and, um, they're, they're liquid. You can trade them in size and. Um, I felt like when I was trading stocks, I had to get up and it's 6.30 start time here for the markets uh, in Arizona. It doesn't go on daylight savings. So we're essentially West Coast this time of year. And then during the winter, we go to mountain uh, time zone. And 6.30, what, what happened this morning is typical. I wake up about 6. I ended up going, getting a couple cups of uh, well, coffee for my wife and decaf for me. And um, we stayed in bed and I saw what the futures market was doing and I read some news and I answered an email or two and just relaxed at breakfast. This is eight o'clock, this interview that you're doing in my time zone, nine o'clock in yours. I got in here to the office at about a quarter to eight and in 15 minutes set up the things I needed to do the interview. And that's a nice peaceful day. I don't want to come down here at 6.15 and be dressed and ready to go and then hit the opening of the market and worry about what my stocks are doing. That's just not, Yeah, that doesn't fit my retirement lifestyle. So and, the, yeah, and the difference in the performance, I mean, you could, you technically, theoretically could do better with individual stocks, theoretically, but it's a lot of work. So, but, but with the ETF, so one of the things that I love about what you do is you have this hedging strategy and I was curious are you hedging fully or are you partially hedging or do you scale hedge? I'm hedging the long exposure. So that changes all the time. Say right now I'm hundred um, percent on 20 sectors. All of them are in an upswing, every single one. And I tried to pick as much diversification as I can, but, and they all went over at different times. I, mm -hmm. I have timing signals for each one of them, but mm -hmm. Um, they're all 100% now. So this rally has gotten to be pretty real, no matter whether people think we're in a bear market or not, and this is a bull trap. It, it very well may be. I'm not predicting. But I can tell you that I'm fully invested because the indicators say that that's what I need to do. 
and I've got my stops. I'm moving them up every day and all that. But uh, the hedge then, if I were to put it on today, and it's not likely to happen today, it's pretty far away, would be to go against that full 20 position dollar limit and volatility limit uh, based on how fast those 20 things move. That's how I'd size that position to match it, basically to take me out of the market and to take a hedge to the downside on the, uh, uh, in my case, I use the ES futures. It's just a convenient vehicle for me to get that exposure the other way. And then on the long side, I've got those ETFs. Now, what's really going to happen probably sooner or later, I have no idea when, we'll go from 20 to 19 to 18 to 17. You know, I'll start selling out of some of those ETFs. Cash gets raised. The head signal is going to go over to the downside. I may only have 10 ETFs left. So my hedges will be sized to deal with the 10 that I still have long. So I only hedge the risk that I have. And then as those continue to go down to, I, recently I was down to zero. I had no positions in ETFs at all. It was full cash. Mm-hmm. And so the hedge becomes down to minimal hedge. I'm slightly short at that point. Uh, and I'm just moving my stops down on the hedge. And sooner or later, the hedge goes away. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you're hedging out the systemic risk only, yeah. which is good. Uh, yeah. which, which I was curious whether, whether how you were doing that for your partially hedging. Because yeah. um, in, in a lot of back tests, partially hedging tends to look better on a risk reward basis, but it's a lot more risk, you know, too. That, that's, that's, that's always a, always an issue. But uh, I, I love the simplicity of using ETFs. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, we added another uh, ETF strategy for that reason, um, just because simula- simulates out well and it's, not quite as good performance as our stock stuff, but it's it's actually a lot easier. I think one of the challenges that individual investors have is that they cannot, for many different reasons, get in the futures markets. So, that's where your fund, you know, involvement may come in play. I realize that you know I've been doing futures now since I was in my twenties, and I'm seventy now. So you know we're pushing. Uh, 45 years or 50 years on it. And so to me, it's about as easy as breathing. But the the futures, I would recommend for people to get involved and just stick their toe in the water. Go do something that they're very used to, which is stocks. And take a micro stock future. So do the micro ES. I think the ticker symbol on my platform is MES. And take like a December contract. And if you have a a thought that the market is going to continue up, you would buy one futures contract. It's not going to cost you that much margin in your portfolio. You'll be able to, you know, a few thousand dollars or something. Now you have a standard Poor's 500 index and you can see what it does. You can move your stops, come up with a strategy that involves buying and selling and a complete strategy so that you know, You've limited everything. You've protected yourself from runaway risk and just see how that works. And you'll find that it's not it's not that strange or surprising or aggressive or dangerous where danger comes in in futures and where you hear the horror stories is when people put up minimum margin and buy maximum futures contracts in their equity and a very slight movement in the market wipes out their margin and they're done. They're negative. The the broker comes in and shuts you down. And I think that's the horror stories like that are theoretically possible, but just like stocks, you could trade stocks on margin or not. Mm -hmm. So you can dial it in at different levels. Futures, the average futures, uh, professional futures trader back in the day when I used to measure it would run, I think Trendstat ran about 17% margin to equity, which would essentially be somewhere around what, six to one leverage. That was normal industry standard. You could run less than that. That's not, you can run one to one. If you want to buy a face value, $30,000 gold contract, roughly if, if gold's at three, uh, 3,000, I guess it would be 30, no, it'd be 300,000. If you want to put up, Unless you, unless you bought yeah. the mini or the micro, which is like one-tenth of that. 
but yeah, buy a micro. So it's one tenth of that. So now you're down to $30,000 of gold, let's say. And you, if you want to put up $30,000 and buy that contract, you'll never get a margin call. You can't. You already put up the full money. You bought the face value gold. It's like buying gold on paper instead of in bullion form. And it's, I actually find futures to actually be easier because you can go long and short like that. You're not worried about, can I borrow the stock? Uh, hedging, it's extremely inexpensive to hedge out portfolio risk uh, exactly. like if you, compared to shorting um and uh it just improves imp if you know what you're doing it improves performance <laughs> exactly and so I, well here's another little um thing that i talk about in the book uh is is what we kind of invented or came about i didn't invent it but by any stretch of the imagination but it became faddish back when i was a money manager called a futures overlay on a stock portfolio what you end up with is, let's say you bought a 100% of your margin account. And so you just, just the cash, you know, you got a $100,000 portfolio, let's say, for a simple example. And you buy stocks with $100,000 worth of stocks. You've got a margin capability for another 100000 because you could buy essentially with a two to one Fed reserve rate. Uh, you know, on margin, you can go up to $200,000 in stocks, but you could just as easily take some of that extra cash, maybe 15% of it, and go trade a futures portfolio that's diversified right in the same account, side mm -hmm. by side, and use that extra equity to do true extreme diversification that ends up helping the overall portfolio, leveraging it slightly, but also reducing the risk. So you get this nice little bump in your performance, a reduction in your risk, an increase in your return to risk ratios, and that's what I do every day. Individual investors never had it better in terms of what you could do. I mean, you exactly. could do this all in one account with various brokerage firms. Uh, they they they'll ding your margin if it's an IRA and things like that. But right. but you could definitely uh, you know put it all together. It used to be a lot harder. You'd have to go to another account, then you'd have to yeah. kind of try to match it up. Now you can just money all over the place. Yeah, I mean, now it's so easy for individual investors. We are so lucky to have this now and in the us in places like i believe if i'm right the eu has banned the trading of spy which we trade 200 million shares a day <laughs> oh i didn't know that wow yeah, i don't think you can do spy transactions somebody told me on twitter oh my when God. i talked about spy they said man we can't do that here it's against the law places like india places like china uh, places uh, like in some cases Japan, a mm. lot of countries have various rules and laws against certain instruments and you don't have that capability. The U.S. has probably has got more uh, possibilities in how you can manage your money. And, and even then, I think the U.S. overregulates the financial industry, in my opinion. And I 100%. used to be on the board of the National Futures Association, which is the regulatory body for futures. And I saw cons after cons and you know with all the regulation that's come in those cons just keep on happening well that's a real People problem in the industry that's a real problem in the industry the nfa versus the sec because you know it, they should just all be together because you know the audit requirements are different it it changes how you do things it makes you want to keep things separate just to be able to meet the requirements for each unless you're running a fund if you're running a fund fine or if you're running a hedge fund, fine. But even running a fund, you have problems because of the funding. So you got all these things. A hedge fund is the only way that you can kind of get around it. But even then, you have to be registered again. So anyway, we can get to a long discussion about this. I agree. It's overregulated. And it actually, I believe it actually hurts individual investors. Yeah, I think what it does is it kind of, for the average individual on the street, like my parents or something that don't know much at all about uh, investing, it lulls them into a a place of complacency and says the government is regulating this investment. And so therefore I can turn my brain off. And uh, I find when I used to travel in trendset days overseas and talk to clients, say in Switzerland or UK or whatever, and some of these other lesser regulated areas where they're dealing with a lot of offshore stuff, they are extremely street smart. The question difficulty to me, goes way up 
on what I need to explain to make them comfortable. Mm. U.S. investors, they yeah, it's regulated, and I don't have to worry about it. Here, mm. Tom, take my money and do something with it. You know, that's not a good attitude for an investor. No, it's for sure, especially if you can invest in a, a small cap fund that's got a thirty percent standard deviation, <laughs> and it's no problem. But you can't go in a diversified portfolio of futures without going through a bunch of ho hoops. Exactly. So, so, yeah. but uh, but there's a lot of good things that we, that we are can take advantage of as U.S. investors. You're totally right about that. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I I think the what I like about what you're doing is this can empower individual investors who want to do it themselves. Correct. Oh, and and it also can open the eyes of investors who hire other money managers to work with money managers that are doing this type of thing because, it, although it's not something that you can hear in the mainstream, it is something that has been going on for years and years and years and um and it could really help a lot of people especially if we get into let's say we get into a big inflationary environment where rates are going up and volatility starts increasing and we have all these other problems like the 70s or something you know like that well if you don't have these tools in your toolkit you can't fill those potholes in your portfolio effectively i love that the yeah, graph, I, and I hope you put that graph in the book. Yeah, I did. And I give full credit to Lawrence Bensdorp, who's a very interesting Dutch fellow who speaks six languages. And he and I do seminars, to, you know, whenever we both can get on each other's calendars, we're going to do one. I guess it's October 7th and 8th in uh, Las Vegas. And it's we've got a waiting list to get into the thing now. Nice. And he uses the term filling the potholes. And I, as soon as I heard it, I smiled and I said, Perfect. I I can see the graph now. It, there's the graph, and there's the little drawdowns, and we're going to fill them. And uh, perfect. Uh, so I I stole that from him. I give him full credit. Well, you've got a great website. Enjoy the ride. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, enjoy the ride. I'm sorry. Enjoy the ride world. Yeah, because dot com was taken. Okay, so we're going to get that in the show notes and. Um, where else could we send people if want to learn more about you? I'm on, I think I'm on all, just about every social media. I, you know, my big one is Twitter with 45,000 followers. I think uh, I've got thousands of followers on um, enjoy the world uh, page of uh, Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on MeWe, Parler, uh, Truth Social, uh, Getter. Telegram and wow. uh, Instagram, although you Instagram everywhere. is probably my least, my least favorite because it sort of requires it's it's kind of a photo oriented sharing thing, and there's some posts I make that are just a comment on something, and I don't have a photo to go with it, and it's like Instagram doesn't know what to do with that, and so I don't do a lot on Instagram, but I I do have an Instagram account, so. That's kind of, you can reach me any number of ways. Be careful, I would have to say, especially on Twitter. I have like eight or nine imposters now wow. that um, seem to want to uh, try to scam my followers uh, with crypto schemes and whatever. So, or selling courses. Yeah. Right? Do, you know, do, you, I mean, do you know Rob Carver? Rob Carver, uh, former, AHL, former AHL uh, manager out of the UK. I interviewed okay. him a few weeks ago and he had the same problem. People are scamming, they're trying to sell, uh, you know, courses and stuff in his name. <laughs> so I don't uh, sell anything by direct message. All your viewers should know that I, I'm retired. I, <laughs> I run the website. Truthfully, the store at the website makes enough money to cover the cost of having the website because there's a cost to putting a website up there of that nature. I've got research papers there. I've got suggested reading. I've got videos. You To pull all that together and to have a website hosted and to lock in the enjoytheride.world name and mm. all this stuff and have accounting and bookkeeping. And there's a cost to running a website, but thankfully uh, selling my position sizing book and a few videos here and there and a seminar occasionally, that pays for the website and then some. So I don't have to go into my pocket to help other traders learn more about uh, trading. And it's a resource. We get a couple thousand visitors a month to that website and they're from all over the world. 
So enjoy That's the ride. Great. That world made sense to me. I've got followers in India and Japan and Europe and uh, sometimes speaking different languages and I have to translate what they say and answer them in uh, English and then translate it back to them. And But, you know, I've, I've got a lot of friends all over the world now and it's kind of fun in retirement to just uh, make connections with people and help out. That's that's great. I should also mention um, you have got probably one of the best series of podcast interviews I've heard on Michael Covell's trend following podcast. Yeah, exactly. He and I uh, hit it off a long time ago. I think he was coming up on, uh, I think he tells a story that he, he kind of was interviewing, he kind of put it nobodies. He was uncomfortable. He was just starting his podcast business and he wasn't sure, you know, he didn't feel comfortable going out and asking anybody. And I was the first sort of name that he asked and we had a great time and it was a great interview. And he noticed real quickly that the number of hits on my podcast, my interview equaled the combination of all the others put together or something like that. <laughs> and he decided, Hmm, I guess I should probably just step up and start asking other famous people. And then he started going after Olympic, uh, Olympic winner, gold medal winners and politicians and, you know, great guys on, on Wall Street that are named people. And they would say yes. And uh, surprisingly, now he's up in the 1200 podcast range. Mm -hmm. And uh, has, he's got millions and millions of listens now. And uh, so he came back to me on, I think, episode 400, episode 600, and uh, was it a thousand or something? He, or 900 or something. He, he seems to pick the round numbers and he's coming up on 1200. Let's go talk to Tom again or something. And uh, we always have a great time because we think a lot alike around, you know, politically and kind of uh, personally in terms of personal goals and self um self-reliance and self mm -hmm. you know take care of your own health work out he and i are, are very similar in a lot of those situations and uh, so we always have a great time talking well i i, I uh in the last podcast i heard you uh, interview with him i heard you mention that uh that you were uh maybe potentially protecting yourself in many different ways more than just financially but also in other ways and, oh, yeah. and I, I share the same thing you have to kind yeah. of protect yourself all the way around and um, I've enjoyed those interviews and um, yeah. I appreciate you coming and talking with me uh, it's nice to be able to finally talk to you this long and um, <laughs> I hope that people can um, you know really benefit from this and whether you do it yourself or not because I really believe I do Tom believe that this is the answer for a lot of people this type of approach uh, an approach that's actively going after risk and trying to profit from it as well, extreme diversification, proper position sizing, that that's going to do better than the traditional way that, that people are being sold products through various vendors. That's why I, that's why I helped Eric Crittenden start Standpoint Funds. It, he's trading something like 75 futures markets and a whole bunch of stocks around the world uh, through ETFs. He's got the extreme diversification thing going. He's got the trend following going. He's got the risk management going. And he put it all inside of a mutual fund. So it's easy for a, a normal investor to, to buy something like that. I love it. And I, I raised most of the money that was used to start the company. I ended up being the chairman out of that. So I'm the chairman of the board. I show up for quarterly meetings. I It allows me to be part of the money management industry without having to be registered and not having to sit there and uh, grind out uh, all day you <laughs> know, nice. positions and some margin call someplace or whatever, you know, this, this wire didn't arrive correctly. I don't need to do that anymore. Uh, Eric and the crew at Standpoint does a fabulous job and I just show up for quarterly meetings and we decide how much dividend to declare. And um, those are the biggest controversies we have. So, and they're now up to like, like 465 million, I guess, last night when I looked at the numbers. So oh, that's, that's they're doing well. Yeah, I, I, I checked it out, took yeah. a look at it. It looks like it's very similar. It's almost like a packaging of what you do um, um, 
for the most part? For the most part, it's completely different models. He's geared to managing billions. I'm geared to managing my little piddly uh, portfolios uh, compared to that. And uh, but you know, he's he's got. I think everybody needs to embrace their own financial challenge and problem. It's like a puzzle. So Tom has his puzzle. Eric has his puzzle. Lewis has his. Each client of Lewis or you know, out there investors in the United States have their own puzzle. They need to embrace what is it going to take to solve that puzzle and really dig in and try to do supply some of these techniques that I talk about in the new book uh, mm -hmm. to just trying to solve your own puzzle. You, you, nobody should trade like me. Nobody should trade like Lewis. You should trade within your own time frame, within your own knowledge level, within your own risk tolerance your capital that you can employ, all of those things are going to create a different puzzle to solve than I had to solve. So I've solved my puzzle very nicely, I think. And um, mm -hmm. it's your job to solve yours. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. All right, Tom, thank you again. Thanks, Lois. And uh, enjoy the ride, as you say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Enjoy the ride, Lois. Information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.